Greetings, everyone. This is Canadian Meets the South, episode 11. I'm reviewing Albion's Seed by David Hackett Fisher. Now, I know it's been a long time since I've uploaded. It's been about four months. A lot of things have happened in Canada. Um, and I must admit that I wish I uploaded sooner. Because I was actually going to review from Manassas to Appomattox by James Longstreet. But uh, let's just say I wasn't really into the book. And it was, it was a, a book detailing Gen General James Longstreet's views um, on the war as in his perspective and how after the war he was called a traitor to the south for taking a job um, with um, from his friend Grant who became president in 1869 but uh it was hard for me to really get appreciate that book because he kept mentioning names and of different people and I, I feel like there were too many names. I couldn't connect a, a name with all a picture with all of the names in my head. And there were a lot of details, but here we are. So I chose to go through Albion Seed after, uh, which was published in about 1990, I think. Uh, so what can we say about Albion Seed? Uh, the, the main theme of the book is that there are four, at least four, British folkways or cultures that came to British America from Britain and uh, became the 13 colonies from this is from the early 1600s all the way to 1775 right and those four cultures were the Puritans in New England, the Anglicans in Virginia, the uh, oh, I'm blanking out in Pennsylvania. They there would be the. Mennonites, the Quakers, sorry, the Quakers in Pennsylvania, and the, the backcountry people from uh, the North Britain, from North Britain into the Appalachian Mountains, mostly 
well, not mostly, but a lot of them, uh, I guess you can say mostly Presbyterian. So they're all, most of them were Protestant, but they had their own values. And the book goes into detail of each one of them in that order before uh, comparing all four of them and and going and talking about how each of the presidents belong or most of the presidents belonged to at least one of them one of those cultural folkways and how it still affects those regions their respective regions even though people even though less than one third of americans are now descended from great britain the the biggest ethnicity at the time is german um but let's talk about each of them first we have the puritans from new england and uh they all four of the folkways had their own conception of liberty and the puritans believed in ordered liberty now um in my view that's the most authoritarian point of liberty because they believed in collective liberty or liberty of the community not so much liberty of the individual now the the puritans they they came to massachusetts bay and well new england would essentially be now is vermont connecticut new hampshire rhode island Maine and Massachusetts and but Massachusetts is the big one and Massachusetts had the Puritans the Puritans came from East Anglia which was from East England um, and they were you could say the the most fervent Protestants they 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 called themselves Puritans because they wanted uh, English Protestants to be to be as pure away from Catholics as possible. And they accused the Anglicans, the Church of England, of not of being corrupted, of Catholicism, of being too close to Catholicism. And obviously the Church of England didn't like that. But so a little bit of that was a little bit of the migration of Puritans to New England would be would be about like wanting to do their own thing in in North America. And uh, in the you yeah, they were pretty authoritarian. They would execute you for bestiality and also for adultery well adultery was i think defined as a relationship with a a married woman and another man 
Sorry. And uh, not too many blacks were were in that part because the higher, the more north you go in North America, uh, the harder it is for Africans to survive the cold weather. And but as you go to the south, it's harder for whites to. to survive the the hot weather or climate, I should say. But you would find strong strong pockets of prohibi oh, uh, sorry, abolitionism in the north. And also they tended to be pretty anti war, which I I didn't I must say I didn't know that. And I guess that's a good thing for them. Uh, later, you would see that the two southern traditions uh, would tend to go to tend to be pro-war. But I'll get to that later. Um, and you can say that the Puritans dominate the United States. They dominate. They have do- been dominating since eighteen sixty-five, essentially. Um, because although they're not the only, they're not the only northern one. There's all there are also the Quakers, but I'll I'll they they're still different, pretty different actually. But I'll get to how it became the the cultural pathways uh, became how cultures became regional in later once I explain all the four folkways. The second folkway would be the Cavaliers, which were who were Anglicans. They mostly came from the south and the west of England. They're the ones most loyal to the King Charles I and Charles II during the English Civil War, which was in the 1640s. And they, well, while the Puritans were mostly middle class, around the same class, middle class, uh, you would have, there's a, there's a much bigger discrepancy in class in Virginia, well, which, it was most of Virginia. There was still, the, the coastal Virginia, you would see later, there's a cultural difference between the East and West, with the, in, first in the, Constitutional Convention of 1829 to 1830, in which the the West didn't have too many freeholders, which were poor whites, mostly in the West, while the East had all the gentry, or the gentlemen, these were the aristocrats. And John Randolph of Roanoke participated in that, and obviously he was, he favored the gentry. His famous quote was I love liberty no I am an aristocrat I love liberty I hate I hate equality because this is this goes beyond black and white there's a there's a there's a hierarchy in Virginian society where the gentry are at the top they have most of the land and followed by the yeoman 
the yeoman. And they they have their own land, but they're they're also they're also a pretty small minority. Like they um then the you have the tenants who rent out the land of the gentry and then the indentured servants who were they were the at the bottom of white society and then you have blacks who you know were slaves um slaves until their masters freed them but as indentured servants had a certain amount of time although that time would be often be extended and uh they were, you know, Anglicans. John Randolph of Roanoke, actually, I I think he converted to Anglicanism. He wasn't originally an Anglican in his youth. But, but um, Anglican society, and they also, but both the Puritans and the Anglicans loved to <laughs> persecute the the Quakers, most of whom went to Pennsylvania, but also to West Jersey and Delaware. This is the Delaware Valley of Quakers. Delaware seceded to um, from Pennsylvania around the American War for Independence at that time, and um, the Quakers believed in religious freedom or recipro reciprocal freedom as in the golden rule, as long as it was for those who believed in Almighty God. They did not tolerate non-believers or atheists. While as the Anglicans in Virginia, the Cavaliers, they're called the Cavaliers because, yeah, they were loyal to the king in this, the English Civil War. They believed in... Uh, hegemonic liberty as in individual liberty but for those at the top well as you know the those without property the the lower class people were uh, they didn't get much liberty and uh, those who were from low those from the lower class of society were not able to you know hit strike another man from a higher caste, you could say class. Although merchants sometimes are put in between those uh, tenants and yeomen. Other times they're put in a separate dimension by historians. It, it depends on who you ask. But it was, Virginia was mostly an agriculture society. Actually, so was the North. Well, I'm referring to Pennsylvania and Massachusetts, but they became, they became manufacturing later on, decades after the American War for Independence. But I'll, I'll get to that later. Uh, so Virginia believed in hegemonic liberty, at least the, the coastal Virginia, you could say, the landed gentry. And Virginia was... No, sorry. I'm gonna go back to the Quakers. So, they 
were also they were persecuted by both Anglicans and Puritans. But the main reason was again to do their own thing when they the main reason to immigrate to North America was to do their own thing. But it did play a role, the the persecution of Quakers. They refused to pay the the, the tithes, which were the church tax Church of England taxes. And so that was a, a major reason why they were persecuted and it's also why they believed in lower taxation, particularly from particularly lower than New England. New England, I would say, is believed in the highest amount of taxation. But now that I say that, I know that James Buchanan of Pennsylvania was 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 the one who signed the Memorial Tariff in 1861, two days before his, the end of his presidency. But that's, but he is a mixture of both Quakers and Puritans. The, the first mix of, for a president. But, oh man, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. I haven't even explained the last of the four the backcountry gen uh the backcountry southerners so okay before that the quakers came from all over england but mostly in the north but not the border the border counties the border counties with you know scotland those were the 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 borderlands the of the the south so we're talking about North Carolina, especially, but also South Carolina and Georgia. And, you know, they would go to, those people would go to um, West Virginia, Tennessee, and, you know, all the way down to Mississippi, in fact. So this is, this is the Appalachians. They were, they, they came from, they were the most mixed because it's not just the northern border counties of England, but also the southern Scot Scottish as well as northern Irish. And there's a you know there's a a bloody history between England and Scotland for, for many centuries and there were the families on the border sometimes would be English at pleasure and Scottish at will. So they would, it was a very anarchistic society, you could say, in the border country in Great Britain. And the term Scots-Irish, the, um, those in, actually in Britain didn't like that because they were mostly either purely Scottish or purely Irish. Um, but... It, this is really an American term, Scots-Irish, and it referred to yeah, those in who would go to the Appalachians. And many of them were Presbyterian. And I think you can remember the Orange Order. These, this is a, an anti-Catholic, a Protestant and anti-Catholic order, which I believe John A. MacDonald and John Diefenbaker, who are... Canadian prime ministers both belong to, but um, I, I'm sure you'll, I don't, I don't think it was, 
I don't remember it was it being mentioned in in the book Albion Seed, but it's a lot of Presbyterians here. There were some Catholics and Anglicans in in this group of Scots Irish and Northern and Northern English. And John C. Calhoun is descended from this tradition. So is Andrew Jackson. So is James Polk and Zachary Taylor. Um, the the Appalachian people, they believed in, I could say, natural liberty, as uh, the book would say, natural liberty. They were more closer to anarchism than than the Quakers. The Quakers believed in less taxes, it's true, but they still believed in... Um, they still believed in more order compared to the the backcountry people, the Southern Highlands, right? The Appalachian people. Um. So. Um, what are we gonna talk about now? They're they, these, you could say since they were the closest to anarchists, the other three cultures saw them as savages, really. Um, the four cultures did not like each other. And um, each each culture goes... Um, the, the, the book goes into depth for each of the cultures, as well as some other cultures. Um, but, well, talks a little bit about some of the other cultures at, in the conclusion, but I won't really talk about those. Now, the four cultures, um, they were four cultures and they fought for really different reasons. It, at least that's what Albion Seed claims. They, not necessarily, they all hated monarchy. I mean, the, I'm sure for many of the backcountry people, the the Appalachian Southerners, they didn't really like monarchy, especially if they came from Scotland or Ireland. The they they would not well they would not like the English monarchy of George III. But it wasn't all anti monarchy. It was uh the New England Yankees were well, just wanted to do their own thing. Uh they wanted to control their own affairs. Britain tried to be more imperial about them, like in the many years leading up to the revolution, the, the American War for Independence, they tried to be more authoritarian, kind of, kind of like how Spain was, and also France over their over their respective colonies. But the problem was that there's a struggle between the mo- the English monarch and the Parliament over who got to control the 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 colonies so that that was a a big reason why there wasn't so much power over them to begin with and by the time you get to the war for independence you have very four separate cultures 
fighting the war for independence on a united front, but later. And this is why you would have a federation, but it, they would be divided even smaller into the states. That being said, when you first you have the Articles of Confederation, um, the first three cultures um, were uh, really in control. The, the backcountry people, the, the, Appalachian, the Southern Appalachian people really didn't like the Articles of Confederation, even though, you know, even, even though, let's say, the Deep South agreed to it. But I guess it was mostly the coastal people in the South, in those Southern states that agreed to the Articles of Confederation, and they had the power. Um, meanwhile, okay, by 1784, the, there was a British spy in uh, the United States, and he, he had said that it, had, it was really three separate republics. Three, not four. So that's, at least that's why Albion's, and yeah, Albion, see, I mean, David Hackett Fisher, the author, he's saying, yeah, the, the backcountry people really didn't like this. And it was also, you know, a compromise, the, the Constitution of 1787 was also a compromise between the three, the three cultures with the Appalachian Highlanders not liking it. And the Appalachian Highlanders being uh, those were those farmers in Pennsylvania actually belonged to the Appalachian Highlander folkway. And what was interesting is that Alexander Hamilton grew up in the West Indies, so he didn't actually belong to any of these four cultural folkways. And although he he did urge George Washington, who belonged to the, you know, the Virginia gentry, the coastal, I guess you can say the coastal southerners, to he Alexander Hamilton urged George Washington to put down the the infamous whiskey rebellion. Although it wasn't just about whiskey, and he and Albert David Hackett Fisher makes it clear that this is a big cultural difference between. That, uh, between the Southern Highlanders and the three other cultures. And I was surprised to learn that because they were Pennsylvania farmers. But, you know, Pennsylvania was pretty big and it had other cultures. Same thing with um, Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry was actually descended from the, the Highlander culture, the Southern Highlander culture. Um which makes it which makes him different from John Randolph of Roanoke. See, in seventeen ninety eight, when they were both elected, as in John Randolph was elected to the House as a Republican from from uh, for Virginia, while Patrick Henry was uh elected as a senator, um, as a federalist. Randolph did say I've that he admired um Patrick Henry to to his face, but they came from different traditions, and that was something that I didn't know about. But um, what else can I say? Um, let's talk about the three folk uh, like 
But let's talk about past. Let's go past George Washington now to to John Adams. So John Adams was a New Englander now, and in 1798, you know, the midterm election, he was able to get significant Southern support. And it was the Quakers in Pennsylvania that didn't like him. But um, after the XYZ affair and um, uh, there was a quasi war, or even before the XYZ affair, the, the quasi war with France really brought out the the war, the war, uh, the warring tension of the two southern cultures, the coastals and the highlanders. And I guess you could say this is partly what unites them because David Hacker Fisher says from 1798 to the present, these two war, they, these, these two cultures have been tending to war. And this is what united them, I guess. Um, and that's kind of sad as an anti-war conservative, although John Randolph of Roanoke, to his credit, was against the War of 1812, which the, which was, for sure, was a southern war. Um, but because tensions died down with France, and Adams was no longer interested in pursuing the pursuit, and Adams made it clear he wasn't going to have another a war with France, the South abandoned him for the Republicans under Thomas Jefferson. And, and John Adams only had New England left because Pennsylvania didn't like him. The, the Quakers didn't like him. So, so there you would have a Jeffersonian, mostly a Jeffersonian from from this time until 1861. Now we'll talk about the exceptions. Um, John Quincy Adams, obviously. I mean, he did, he did decide to become a Jeffersonian Republican in, <laughs> during, during the embargo, 1807, he switched parties from his father. But, he still believed in, you know, authority, uh, in ordered liberty. I'm sure you, in the conservative mind by Russell Kirk, really explains his puritanism better than me. Um, I mean, after all, like, it is a bit odd, I could say, in the conservative mind that you have both Calhoun and John Quincy Adams, but he's... He makes the case, um, Russell Kirk, that they're both, like John Adams, they're both descended from the tradition of, the, the Whig tradition of, of Edmund Burke, or at least strongly influenced by. Now, the first, so after, Okay, the first, so Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, they came from the coastal Virginia tradition, the aristocratic gentry tradition. Then you have, and then after John Quincy Adams, you would have Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was the first of the coast, of the, the Highlander tradition. He was a Scots-Irish man. Same thing with Calhoun. 
and um, you can say that he did some things that were states' rights, which which certainly is in line with the natural liberty of the Highlander tradition, the Southern Highlander tradition. But other times, such as okay, as I mean, as in Worcester v. Georgia, for example, as in letting Georgia do its own thing with the Indians and ignoring John Marshall by saying. John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Or at least that's what he supposed to, supposedly had said. But who knows if that's actually true. Then you have... But on the other hand, you have the nullification crisis. Being really heavy-handed with, with John C. Calhoun and the South Carolinians. Which for sure is not in line with natural liberty. At least I don't think. Unless you call the... The, the violence so the as part of the tradition threatening violence because that's they were very violent they um one thing of the highlander tradition was they believed in there were two types of you know brawls um as in between men you would have high you would have fair fight as in fighting fair or rough and tumble in which anything goes and you can rip out people's eyes and ears and noses or something and that was eventually outlawed in virginia but it still happened in most other states um but okay that's getting a little off topic from the presidents then we have martin van buren who was descended from those of new netherland which was, you know, the capital of which was New Amsterdam, which was in New York. And New York hasn't really mentioned that much because it's really, yeah, it was really originally from New Netherland. So Martin Van Buren's first language is, is Dutch. But until, until John F. Kennedy, um, Martin Van Buren was the only exception to this, to this, uh, British folkway thing. John F. Kennedy is descended from Irish immigrants who came in the mid 1800s, in the, the mid 19th century. Um, afterwards, you have James Knox Polk from Tennessee. He is, uh, oh, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. You had William Henry Harrison, who is from the Virginia Gentry, and honestly, so is John Tyler, although his mother, his grandmother, is French Huguenot. The Huguenots were Protestants, and you know France was mostly Catholic at that time. Then you have James Knox Polk, who was yeah a Highlander from Tennessee. Then you have you have Zachary Taylor, who is you know from the same Taylor family as John Taylor of Caroline, so you know Virginia around that place, but like. Like Patrick Henry, he's from the uh, from the Highland tradition, and you know Polk was also also a warmonger. You could say the first imperialist president. He was a warmonger. Um, next, okay, Polk was Zachary Taylor was the one he sent in. He was also from that warrior culture. Um, and what's interesting is. Zachary Taylor 
in, in, in the southern tradition the southern highland tradition sometimes you would have uh people being named after their grandfathers so for example Zach president zachary taylor's grandfather was also named zachary taylor um president zachary taylor's father was richard taylor and his son was famous famous famously you know confederate general richard taylor and then uh confederate general richard taylor's son who didn't live long was named zachary taylor so that was interesting the way they each culture named its own people it's named its own children was unique um in the in new england often children who died um doesn't uh children would be named after their older siblings if their older siblings had died so it's it was i don't i don't remember all the details of the naming but it was a, a part of the cultures so after zachary taylor you have millard fillmore didn't really talk they the book didn't really talk too much about fillmore um but he was a northerner i think i don't remember which one he was he was either a quaker or he was um puritan but he he was a northern whig he believed in internal improvements which it actually didn't talk about too much internal improvements or not too much about the tariff either or the american system then um you would have franklin pierce franklin pierce was the last who of the presence who was wholly in the one of the traditions because afterwards it would be just a mix um because buchanan became was a mix of of yankee and you know puritan and uh pennsylvania uh quaker and same thing was same thing was most of the presence from that point on and you would see after the after the reconstruction the south votes for democrats and the north voted for republicans let's talk about how cultures became sections merged into sections to fight for what their interests were the north became more of an agriculture um, became more of a manufacturing society o- originally they were all all of the both the north and the south were were agricultural but the north became more manufacturing and this made them rely more on tariffs protectionist tariffs for them to 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 be prosperous and um and remember they didn't really like each other at first the puritans and the quakers but by then you would see that they they work together to to exploit the south with the the tariff and that's how i that this is so this mer, this i guess merger was this um voting block you could say it only came after like the southern voting block for the pro war 
voting bloc that abandoned John Adams and came after this. Um, because this is due to economics, right? So this is like around 1815, 1816. When, when, I'm not going to say that's exactly when, but this, they were tending now to go to agriculture. I mean, to, to manufacturing. That's why in 1816, John C. Calhoun wanted to throw the south of uh, the north of Bowdoin to keep them in the Union by proposing the tariff of 1816. Daniel Webster, who was a Yankee, actually opposed this tariff, but it still passed. Uh, John Randolph of Roanoke knew that the tariff of 1816 was, you know, a Pandora's box that could lead to more bad things. Um, well, let's see what else is next. Um, so you would have the sectionalism where the only, the only, I guess, interruption of sectionalism from Reconstruction until 1912 when Woodrow Wilson, the Virginian-born governor of Virginia, became the president of the United States, as in he, he was able to unite both sections was the was 1892 because you had the populist party right you had the people's party uh, under James Weaver getting five states from the the south I'm sorry the west and then you have 1890 but then 1896 comes along and and uh, William Jennings Bryan represents both the People's Party and the the Democratic Party. And what's interesting is that even though you could say they were both statist, more statist than the original laissez-faire Jeffersonians, the progressives and populists are supposedly different people, uh, if you ask David Hackett Fisher. The progressives were from New England, and that's why the, well as the, the populists were from the South and the West, which is uh, why, well, the, the West first and then later the South. In, that's why in 1892 they still the New England is still voting Republican. Um, but they're both statist, as in the the progressives. You know, believed in not just alcohol, but um, there were some other policies such as you know eugenics. <laughs> um. I feel like the book didn't really explain too much. It didn't do much justice in explaining the difference between the progressives and the populists. I understand the populists did also see themselves as Jeffersonians because they didn't like the cronyism of the Republican Party and how it wasn't in the West at first. It wasn't affecting them. And then the South, the South was trying to tell the West for, for, for many decades, that the Republicans um, were not their friends. 
because the Republicans were interested in tariffs for themselves. Though the West originally just wanted internal improvements, but they were not necessarily for the, the merger of finance, of big finance and big government, and maybe not, and not necessarily for the high tariff. But um, in the 1892 election, you still had, okay, if you look at the platform, right, it said either the people or the corporations will own the railroads. Now, that kind of sounds socialist to me. And, you know, Eugene Debs was actually a member of the socialist, uh, of the populist party before he became the, the many-time uh, presidential candidate for the socialist party. Um, but, yeah, um, Eugene Demps, hold on, sorry, but like I was saying before, until 1912, you have the two sections, right? And then um, you would see later, especially, then, then it would go back, in the 20s, it would go back to sectionalism. Like, for example, 1924, Calvin Coolidge, who is actually a pretty good president, um, okay, decentralization as a president, maybe was more heavy-handed, and, and he was certainly a progressive as the governor of Massachusetts. He supported the 17th and the 19th Amendment. And um, Woodrow Wilson actually admired him. He told him he admired Coolidge. Told Coolidge that he had admired him because of how he had put down like the police union um, riot or insurrection. If it's, maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. I had read earlier, like, Maybe two years ago, I read 1920 by David Petrusa, but um, um, where it goes into the detail of the six presidents in 1920. But, oh yeah, I guess I should say 1904, it was also pretty sectional, in which the last Jeffersonian Democrat, Alton Parker, the South voted for him, the North didn't. I mean, the North voted for Roosevelt, so that was pretty sectional before 1908 comes. And William Jennings Bryan's party of uh, faction takes firm control over the Democratic Party. But um, 1912, you have someone to unite both sections, Woodrow Wilson, and same thing with 1916 as he runs for re-election. But the 20s, it comes back to sectionalism. In 1924, Calvin Coolidge wins the North, while as John W. Davis wins the South. He was from he was from West Virginia. And you would uh, um, 1932, I guess, changes stuff because you would have the New Duke. Well, 1928 was already a shakeup because because the Democrats elect put in a Catholic. So some of the South actually defected to, to Hoover because of that. But then uh, 1932 comes around and you would see um, Roosevelt, uh, Roosevelt taking control of more than just the South. Takes a lot of the North as well. 
And the Republican response was was okay after after uh, Harry Truman, who was from Missouri, you would get Dwight Eisenhower, who was supposedly a moderate New Dealer um, to keep the New Deal coalition defeating Robert Taft, who was who was certainly a strong free market conservative. The son of William Howard Taft, who, although was a northerner, wasn't really a conservative. Maybe let might be more conservative compared to Wilson, but um, Taft, his son was really conservative, but he lost nomination in both forty eight to to Dewey, who was a moderate moderate New Dealer, and. Eisenhower, who was a moderate New Dealer, again. Um, let's go to 19... In 1956, actually, there was a talk in the Democratic Party of of Lyndon Johnson being the, the head of the ticket and Kennedy being the, the vice president, but that didn't happen. They still, they still put Ally Stevenson II, like they did in 52, to, against Eisenhower, and they lost. But yeah, 1960 rolls around and Kennedy is, again, is uh, from, not from the folkways, well as Johnson was. Um, in 64, actually, I think Goldwater was f- from the Highland tradition, I think. I, uh, but, um... Later on, you would see, after Nixon, you would have uh, Carter, who was from the Highland tradition. He was a farmer, right? A southern farmer from Georgia. And um, it made the case that even in South- Southern California, the Highland tradition spread. But it's kind of hard to see says California is a really big mess and it's a big country where the the state legislature is doesn't have good represent uh population representation but uh and some counties are really red in California but uh I guess the last president it goes to was oh um Reagan and Nixon were from California. Last president goes to was, uh, the book talks about was George H.W. Bush, who was born in Connecticut, I think, but he was, he was um, living in Texas at the time, just like his son. So he had, he had a foot in both the North and the South, but I think I strayed too much off topic though right now the New England Yankees are controlling and and are controlling Amer- the American really the American federal government and Hackett Fisher makes the case that when even though they were Puritans and they hated the Catholics that their Puritan culture um okay in Maine and you know, Massachusetts, there are a lot of Catholics now, right? 
and they've been influenced by the Puritan culture, including John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy certainly was in the, certainly took elements of the Puritan culture. And so those who even weren't descended from the culture still took parts of the culture, like, I guess you could say ordered liberty or whatever. I, it, I wish I could explain this better. The book does a better job. Now, let's talk about uh, Canada. So, you know, in January and February, you would have we had the the protests, and then I remember Brian McClanahan said, "Who knew that Yankees were in Canada?" Well, <laughs> Canada is kind of authoritarian, uh, honestly, compared to especially some. Not just America, but like if there, if I'm comparing the South to Canada, there's no question Canada is authoritarian. And, you know, Canada is descended from those who were loyal to the British in, in 1776 and during the War for Independence. A lot of loyalists came here and then these were Tories, certainly not. While as the Whigs in America claim to be descended from the Whigs in Great Britain, although like <laughs> after they kicked out John Tyler, it was clear they weren't anymore. They were just against Andrew Jackson. They they were still after they kicked John Tyler. They still it showed that they believed in centralized power. They just didn't want. Andrew Jackson to have it. They called Andrew Jackson the king. So this is... So while you had the Whigs in America, in um, Canada, you have the Tories who were supposedly the conservatives. And certainly I am not loyal to the queen at all. I never swore an oath to her. And... Yeah, I do. I certainly am more in line with the Tory tradition. No, sorry, with the Whig tradition, oh my god. Um, the, the Whigs believed in decentralizing power. They believed in free markets. And um, Lord Acton was in that tradition. Although the Whigs were, the Whigs were really anti-Catholic, they did believe in, the, 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 in decentralizing the power away from the monarchy. And that's what Lord Acton believed in, even though he was a Catholic. I mean, he was obviously a liberal MP. And the, the liberals were were um, in charge of, well, we're, we're a coalition of the Peelites, the Radicals, and the Whigs. The Peelites were originally from the Tory party, the Conservatives. Um, but... Um, in Canada, that is mirrored, as in we have the conservative liberal mirror, as in the liberals originally in the 1860s believed in free markets, decentralization, like the, like uh, in the, the way uh, in Great Britain. And I could talk about home rule as well. 
and how that destroyed that helped destroy the Liberal Party. That helped either way that the Liberal Party before being supplanted as the opposition to the Conservatives by the Labour Party. Um, Labour is kind of like the NDP. They are socialists or social democratic. Um, but the NDP has only been the official opposition at the federal level once. They've been the government in various provinces. Um, now, uh, so the protests happened in, in January and February, and obviously, uh, Aaron O'Toole, who was, you know, not, uh, he was, thought he was voted out as leader, because I guess this, this, this was, this is the spark to show that he was not a strong conservative leader, um, for not, I guess, being strong enough supporting the truckers. Like what? What happened in January and February was that the truckers were protesting the vaccine mandate to enter the enter to and from the United States, like to go back and forth between the between the two countries, Canada and the United States. And many of them, the of the, I'm sure many of them were on or were vaccinated. It's COVID nineteen, but it's it's uh. It's become really a cultural issue now because it's because it's the fight between collectivism and individual liberty and certainly they were closer to not just the not just the tories but certainly the liberals and the ndp are certainly more more collectivist than they are libertarian individualist because they showed their hand when with uh, wanting vaccine mandates. Um, and of course, when it comes to abortion, they're not really saying too much. I mean, they they can't really say bodily aut- autonomy anymore to, and pro-choice. They don't say it too much anymore because they believe in forcing chemicals into people's bodies or making them a second-class citizen until they until they they choose to comply and certainly now uh, because Aaron O'Toole didn't take a firm position against these vaccine mandates well this is now we opened the rift in the conservative party you will see again a battle for the soul of the conservative party um like like you did in 48 and 52 with you had in the Republican Party in the United States, you had Robert Taft, right? He was certainly strong, maybe not strong enough, according to Murray Rothbard, on against the the New Deal, and the Republican Party was taken over by the moderate New Dealers. So Thomas Dewey in nineteen forty eight, and Eisenhower in nineteen fifty two. You would see, so are we going to have moderate leftism in this conservative party or not? And certainly Maxime Bernier in the People's Party, he got a big spike in support in in the, in the federal election. He got, I think, 5%, 6%. 
So he he more than tripled his uh his view his his percent his 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 votes because he only had he only had about one point six percent. So he had like about a two hundred thousand um quarter million about of votes and then yeah, like seven hundred fifty million. I don't remember the exact number. I um, but uh, now you really have the the People's Party, and it will be stronger. I I can assure you, if if you have a moderate leftist such as Patrick Brown or Jean Chalet, um, who wins the leadership. And Pierre Polyev is supposedly a hardline conservative. He did vote in... He voted to support the Paris Accord in 2017. I know Bernier, you could say cowardly, chose to, chose to, uh, to be absent for that vote in 2017. This is, um, what, June 2nd, 2017? Something around there. And... Um, we also have a, but it's, uh, at least being absent is better than actually voting for it. This is what Pierre did. And, you know, Pierre, he's flip-flopped on social issues for political expediency. Back in 2020, he would, when he was thinking about running, but didn't actually put his foot into the race, he said that he had changed his mind about gay marriage and abortion. And well, if you can change your mind on those big issues, well, you can change your mind on economics and the the constitutional limits of the federal government. You can change your mind on a lot of things. And, you know, people don't... And he was... He's been in a member of uh, parliament for even longer than Bernier. Bernier was elected in 2006 and then left 2019 when he lost his seat. P- Pierre's been in Parliament since 2004. So he's he's been he's a much bigger career politician than Bernier has ever been. Bernier spent quite a bit of time in the private sector. Um, while Pierre spent most of his adult life since he was 25 or 24 in uh, he's now I think 42 in he's now um he spent the majority of his adult life in Parliament, and I don't really know if that's a good thing. I'm not... It's probably a bad thing. Um, but... I, I mean, I really don't like it. It's not the worst thing in the world, and certainly he is better than Brown or Charest. There's also Leslie Lewis, who's running again to be a leader. And we'll see. She seems to be the strongest of the social conservatives in the race. There are there are also another, there's other also other people. There's I think some other conservatives like Mark Dalton. He originally had endorsed Pierre Polyev, but then he he's a former pastor. He he's also uh, he is also a former British Columbia MLA um, from the Liberal Party in uh, British Columbia 
and he also wants you know to have talks on on abortion there's uh grant abraham there's joseph borgano i'm saying his name wrong i'm sorry but there are a lot of people and what else can i say um several social conservatives that i'm but what i'm unfortunately there are a lot of yeah there are a lot of progressives in the conservative party but what i want to see from the social conservatives particularly is decentralization um i remember from uh pierre saying that he would do something about the housing crisis and he would he would do something about the mayors on on twitter and then maxime bernier called him out for not being a decentralist for not respecting federal jurisdiction or provincial jurisdiction and certainly we cannot have we cannot force i i'm a states rights man obviously i believe in decentralization a more decentralized federal federation because even if you force your way your version of liberty on a small small minority like a small municipality or province this will bite you in the butt later on and pierre is i feel that this is what people are doing there are a lot you have a lot of i think a lot of nationalists who are going to support pierre and if he does this one-size-fits-all government when it comes uh policy when it comes to housing this is not going to set a good precedent it's not. Uh, we need a more decentralized federation. And he, he Pierre, believes that he's going to solve... He's, he's making it out that he's going to solve all the economic problems. And even forcing the idea of... Not forcing more free markets or something on the, on the provinces or municipalities. And, I, and obviously that's really bad. I remember Jean Charest, supposedly, he's saying some of the good things as well. Um, as in he, when he had his interview with, um, with Andrew Laden, he said, as, a, as someone who served as both premier and in parliament, he's, he has a unique view on federalism. But, um, so he will, he's, at least says he will respect provincial jurisdiction. But I mean, as premier, certainly he did. But like, it's he did introduce a sales tax. He was in favor of a gun registry. He was in favor of some other statist authoritarian measures. And um, I know this is straying off topic from the book, but I'll say this: while you have. You certainly have, like, originally it was a, a cultural dichotomy between English and French speakers in Canada. But in America, you have almost everyone speaking English, but there are still several different cultures. While as the main cultural difference supposedly is between the English and the French, at least that's how Quebec sees it. However, the Prairie province, the West, particularly the Prairie pro- province, is not necessarily the west coast but 
maybe British, interior British Columbia. Certainly the prairies, especially Alberta and Saskatchewan, maybe not too much Manitoba. But you will see, you saw later the, the Maverick Party there, the rise. The, well, they didn't really get many votes, but they want to become the Bloc Québécois of the West. So the West, the Western provinces are, you will see the sectionalism now because that which mirrors the North and South sectionalism. But honestly, they were, there are different cultures, obviously, in the West as well, because like I mentioned, the coastal West, though the West Coast is different from the interior, interior West, by far, the West, the West Coast is certainly more statist where strong amounts of NDP elected members of the Legislative Assembly in British Columbia as well as MPs are from the, the West Coast. While as the interior BC, you would see more um, conservative-leaning politicians. And they're, I guess, closer to the oil patch, you know, closer to Alberta. And, you know, Alberta and Saskatchewan used to be together as Buffalo, and then they were cut in two. Who knows if this weakens their power or not, but it would... They originally had one territorial governor. Governor, It was... And yeah, it was... Alberta and Saskatchewan were split. But certainly, Alberta has... There is more... There is more separatist, con, uh, separatist appetite in Alberta than Saskatchewan. In Alberta right now, Jason Kenney is facing a leadership review, and some people think it, it's going to be with the mail-in ballots. Ballots, there are there's going to be cheating. Because if it was in person, people think that Jason Kenney doesn't survive. And then you have two, at least two, people eyeing for the conservative leadership should Jason Kenney lose. The, and you, ha, you have for, former Wild Rose leader of the opposition, Jean, Brian Jean and um, Danielle Smith. Now, Danielle Smith, if you can go on her email list, and she has, when she sends out emails every week, these are pretty long emails. Um, and she certainly wants to be an MLA again for the UCP. And I know some people are not going to like her because she, because of what she did in 2015 or 2014 when she crossed the floor to join the UCP, I mean, to join the Progressive Conservatives. And yeah, this was a betrayal of many of the, and many people didn't trust Wild Rose after that because, and yeah, they, they voted for NDP. So now, in Alberta, like there's a lot of, for especially Rebel News and True North, they they tend to cover Alberta a lot because Alberta is supposedly strong bastion of conservatism, kind of like Texas in the United States, supposedly. But the the mayors, um, like you have the former Liberal cabinet minister, um, uh, I forgot his name. But he's now the the mayor of Edmonton, and you have this woman in Calgary who says, who speaks out of both sides of her mouth essentially, 
she said there's a climate emergency, but at the same time, she went to a Friends of Oil and Gas conference. So she's trying to, she's a progressive and she tries to play both sides. But Edmonton, Edmonton and Calgary, the, the big cities, they are, especially Edmonton, are really leftist. And just by themselves, I think, plus a little bit more, they can outvote the, the rural area of uh, Alberta and it can become an NDP place again. So who becomes the next premier might be important because if this... Um, oh, I got interrupted because I ran out of battery, so I had to... I mean, ran out of space, so I had to transfer my files. But um, this will be edited, like I was saying about Jason Kenney. Um, he, although he says he did better than Australia, he's not as authoritarian as Australia, for example. It was still pretty authoritarian. Still introduced proof of vaccination passports um, in Alberta. And this is supposed to be a conservative province. Apparently not very conservative at all. And... Um, I'm sure people will also remember how he forced the UCP not to vote, the UCP caucus not to vote on the abortion bubble zones in Alberta back when the NDP were in charge, were in government. So we'll see how this how this goes because um, the conservative movement is looking at Alberta, but then we're also looking at whether Doug Ford can win again in Ontario and. There are two fledgling parties right now. There were supposed to be three. The Ontario First Party, which was started by... But it never really started by Randy Hillier, who was Maxime Bernier's friend, apparently. And Randy Hillier, I mean, obviously, I don't like him. He chose not to vote on the abortion bubble zones back in 2017. Maybe he was too scared or something. This is October. Um, and he... Uh, I don't know, he has supposedly a deal with with the, the Ford PCs to, because he was able to, his writing association, his independent writing association was able to take money, just like um, the, uh, Roman Baber, who was, who's also now a conservative leadership candidate. Um, then we have um, the Ontario Party by led by Derek Sloan, but you have Rick Nichols who, who voted for Bill 67, and um, he also voted for the abortion bubble zones, the second reading in October 2017. And, you know, um, he got kicked out of PC caucus uh, because uh, during the pandemic, unlike Hillier, um, he got kicked it out because he didn't take the vaccine. But... Um, yeah, his voting record's not good, and what can I say? Um, in the Ontario Party, they're not running a full slate. They don't have infrastructure writing associations. The New Blue Party, led by Jim Carajalios, and, and who currently has Belinda Carajalios, his wife, as an MPP currently, I, I hope that they at least get Belinda re-elected because it's important to, to keep 
the conservatives um, on their toes because certainly they're more principled. I mean, Doug Ford first said that he wouldn't introduce vaccine passports and then later he did. And Belinda saying that we need to ban vaccine pa passports. And maybe finding them is a bit too much, but then again, if the government created them, then the government needs to put a heavy hand to stop this problem of vaccine pa passports. Um, but I, I wish that the government would, I, I wish we, that there wouldn't be, it wouldn't have to be like this. But um, that's how we live. In Florida, they've essentially banned the proof of vaccination. Um, same thing now, I think now with Texas, same thing now in Alabama, in a lot of southern states, I think, in the Midwest as well, and also in the mountain areas like Montana. And you will see, you'll see that there's a, the difference between Canada and the United States is that we are really statist and all of the provinces have vaccine passports. Meanwhile, well, now they're, well, they're technically they're lifted in Ontario, but you still need the, the passport created by the provincial government to, to fly on a train, not to fly on a, on a public plane or use a train because of, because of the federal government. Or to go into the United States, listen, people who aren't vaccinated are trapped. But you will see the difference in cultures. And now uh, David Hackett Fisher said that now that there's, there's at least six cultures um, that have sprouted out as the United States has, has expanded. And you'll see on the West Coast and the Northeast Coast of the United States, no you know, strong, strong lockdowns and passports or vac vaccine passports, but for like for middle America and for the South, you see more freedom and there's a stark contrast in cult different cultures between red and blue states. But even, I'm sure even in the red states, Christy Nome, for example, didn't lock down at all, didn't put any restrictions. Well, some other Republican governors may have may have put in harsh restrictions. So there are still cultural differences even within the Republican Party. But um, I I don't want to keep this going too long. Um, not after that because I'm I'm gonna have to edit this. But um, if you if you've watched my previous episodes from last year, thank you very much, and I have another one episode coming i don't know when but i know that another one will come out because there's already a book in mind i have to review um actually two books so thank you for for um listening and um or, or watching whether you're watching from podcast from youtube or listening on the podcast service thank you um i'll, I'll continue to speak up well, I'll continue to review books and then, and then comment on the situation in Canada as it relates to America, especially the Southern tradition. Uh, so this has been Canadian Meets the South, episode 11. Thank you.